Okay, we're um, in our series going through 1 Timothy. So turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 1410. It's interesting that, um, I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but in Scripture, often passages of Scripture will will be uh, weighted one way or the other in terms of provision or obligation. Sometimes there are passages of Scripture that speak more about God's provision to us of something, uh, grace in some form, um, just the way he enables us. Uh, and then at other times, they're, they're, they're heavier, more on the terms of obligation, what it is we're supposed to do. But they all go together. God provides us grace and puts on us obligations that we need to fulfill but he but we're to fulfill them with the grace that he's given us the the enablement that he's given us to to fulfill those obligations but as you go through scripture and especially as we do we go through kind of slowly we can lose sight of the fact uh, if you're just in one you might forget about the other and we're in a passage right now that's heavy on the obligation it's speaking about elders in the church and the, and the qualifications that elders are supposed to have fulfilled in order to be picked to be elders, and then they have to continue that way. Uh, there are also these qualifications of elders are actually for all of us. They're, they're attributes of Christian maturity. So this is a passage in which God's laying obligation on us, and I don't want us to forget, though, that in the midst of all this, that... that um, it's true, this is an, these are obligations on us, but let's not forget that God gives us the grace in Jesus Christ to fulfill these obligations and to be these kind of people. Um, so let's remember that. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, and we'll focus, though, this morning on, on verses 4 to 7. But to give us the whole paragraph, I'll read here. It says... It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." What I'd like to do uh, this morning is look at three dangers that this um, this text presents. Um, uh, two that speaks of them very clearly, and one it's by implication. So there's three dangers if these qualifications are not followed for choosing elders, and there are three strengths, corresponding strengths found in elders. If these qualifications are followed and what I want to do is I want to in each case each of these three cases I want to look at the verse first and talk about it and then then mention the danger and the strength at the end. 
So let's look at verse 4 and 5 again. It says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So we see here that it says that the, the elder is the elder pastor is to be one who manages his own household well. And then it goes on and it explains, well, what does that mean? Well, it means more than just making sure the finances are in shape and the lawn is cut and everything else. But I think all that would be involved too. But it explains, it says there then, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then it says, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So the focus then becomes the man's children and how he's doing raising his kids. Is he keeping them under control? That's the, the way it's stated there. Now, in the book of Titus, Paul has some explanation about um, elders also there. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, I'll read it to you. He's talking about the elders again. And he says they should be, they should, it says having, they, sh- they should keep their home under control. It says having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, when it says that having children who believe, that that can sometimes be translated children who are faithful. So there's a little bit of discussion. Does that mean that the children are believers, uh, which you can't actually make that happen versus these children are faithful people. They're just faithful people. And it says not accused of dissipation. There's that word again. We keep bumping into it recently. Um, dissipation is when people are, there's an immoderate, pursuit or indulgence of their phys- of physical pleasure that's what dissipation is it says or rebellion so an elder's kids can't be kids who are rebels they can't be kids who are just living for the flesh and physical uh, pleasures indulging themselves in that that can't be what characterizes their life um, they have to be people who are faithful they're under control so that's, that's interesting, isn't it? That he's saying that for an elder in the church, his children have to be a certain, a certain way. And I believe that it's said this way, of course, on purpose, that it's saying that if the elder can't shepherd his own family, can't uh, actually lead and help his own children to be certain kinds of people, to restrain themselves, to behave in certain ways, and to be at the heart of them. They're not rebels. Uh, they, they actually are obeying. They're obeying their parents. That's important. That, that kind of thing doesn't happen um, by chance. I'm sure it must be different for Ron and his new grandson. Maybe that, that baby's probably different. But... Um, Every one of us who are parents know that those little goobers are born with a sin nature, right? I love it. I love those people that say, you know, the, that we're all born kind of like a blank slate. And, and it's only because of being around other sinners that we become sinners. 
Man, those guys have not been parents. A kid comes out ready to assert its will, right? And as a parent, your, your, part of your job is to, to say, no, <laughs> the world doesn't revolve around you. Your will is, gonna, is not going to be what runs this house. Um, and will that, will, from right from the start, how we raise our kids. Um, and then it matters, and it says something about the dad. It says something about the mom. It says something about how they're being raised. Now, I want to take a quick tangent here. What about adult children? This question comes up sometime. Um, does this mean that if a person's adult child uh, turns away from God or whatever, are they, does that disqualify the, the parent from being, the, the father from being an elder? And I, w- I would say that this way, that there is, there is some point when a person is not a child anymore. Okay, when they're they're an adult, and this verse is talking about children who are in the home of the of the of the father, and so so it, it's talking about ch- children who are still called children. They're not adults, and so so I think that that that's what the verse is talking about. It's not talking about later in the in the in that child's life when they're an adult and are on their own. I don't think the verse is talking about that. It's not it's it's silent about that. Now, it's interesting here too then. So we have Titus and we have First Timothy. First Timothy saying the child the children have to be under control. Titus helps us understand that it says it says they're faithful kids, they're they're um they're, they're not just living for their own pleasure. That doesn't characterize them. And they're not rebels. That means that they, they obey. But back here again, you see in 1 Timothy 3, it says there in verse 4, he's keeping his children under control with all dignity, it says. This is important. With all dignity. You see, dad can't be out of control as he gets his kids under control. Does that make sense? Dad can't be losing his dignity. He's screaming, yelling, throwing things, threatening, and getting his kids under control. That doesn't work. That, that, you might get your kids under control that way, but that's not what this verse is talking about. This is saying you, you get your children under control. You're raising them that way in a dignified way. William Henderson says it this way. He says... The authority, the authority of the father as a parent, must be exercised in such a manner that the father's firmness makes it advisable for a child to obey, that his wisdom makes it natural for a child to obey, and that his love makes it a pleasure for a child to obey. He keeps his children under control with all dignity, with all dignity. And again, we see here in verse 5 that the home is the proving ground for eldership, for being a pastor. If you can't do, if you can't shepherd your little flock that you've got at home, you're not qualified to shepherd the flock of God. And it doesn't matter if you're the mayor of the town or you're the, the, a successful businessman or you, you, you run things that work well. It doesn't matter what your, your social qualifications are. 
out in the community. If you're not shepherding your own children, your own family, you're not qualified to be an elder. That's the way the scripture says. That's the proving ground, not the business world. Your home, your home. Well, when we look at a passage like this and we want to apply it to our life, and I trust that as we go through these verses, you'll just let the Spirit of God speak to you about your own life. It certainly applies to us as fathers, anyone here that's a father with kids in the home. And it applies actually to mothers because we're, we're doing this together. But we see that as parents, this is, this is our goal. Our goal is that, part of our goal, is that our children are under control, that, that they're not... Uh, rebellious, that they actually obey us, that they obey us. I think it, bo- it boils down to that, that, that uh, children who are under control means that they, they're obeying their, their parents. And they're, they're doing it, the reason they're doing it, or, or the process whereby they arrived at the place where they're living under control has been one of dignity. I haven't been losing my temper and going crazy and pitching a fit myself to make sure that they, they obey. So this is speaking to us along with many other passages in Scripture about the need for um, us as parents to train our children to obey us, to obey us. I remember one time, um, oh, we had lots of experiences like this, but I just remember one time when one of our kids was a toddler, so it's just... See, we got one son and two daughters. So if I say he, then you know who it is, and it rats. But okay, so he was, uh, he's toddling there, so he's not very old, but he can walk, okay? And we were outside by a street, there was a busy street. I was outside, he was farther away from me, I couldn't grab him. Car's coming, and he's headed to the street, okay? He's, he's by the edge of the street, so he's gonna walk out. Now, This is what you should be able to do. I just said, Sam, stop. Turn around. Come here. And he stopped and he turned around and he came to me. I didn't yell. Sam, stop. There's a car. You know, and I didn't say, Sam, stop. No, Sam, Sam, stop. No, Sam, Sam. By this time, the cars run over you know, actually, when, when the kids are really, really little, you, whether or not they obey you can actually save their life. You know, when they're little, really little, because they don't know what's out there. But that didn't happen automatically. There was a long process whereby he reached the point where he knew that when dad said, Sam, stop, dad, dad meant Sam, stop. And if he didn't stop, something was going to happen to him that he didn't like. It's called discipline. And, and, and he learned that when mom and dad say something, they actually mean it. You should be able to do that. You should be able to stop your child with your voice that's not yelling. And I believe that that's, that's a way of living out this verse, that children should be under control but with dignity. I remember, uh, our, uh, yeah, he was born. I'm not picking on my son, by the way. It's just that you guys know me, so you know who I'm talking about anyway. But the first Christmas that we had a kid, so he's five months old. He was born in August. And we got all kinds of advice. Oh, now you're going to have to put all the 
uh, ornaments on the tree. You're going to have to hang them up high now. I'm thinking, no, I'm not. It's a Christmas tree. I'm not going to decorate it down here and not on the bottom just because there's kids around the house. You see, it's amazing what we think. We think kids have to uh, run the place. But I don't find that in Scripture. So I said, no, I'm going to decorate the tree like I always decorate the tree. And we're going to teach him not to mess with what it is he wants to mess with. And we did. And the tree was like that. And he learned, you know, real quick that you don't touch those things. And it was fine. And we kept doing that. And don't, don't you love how some parents run around? Well, we want the kid to stay in the living room. So they pile furniture on every door. <laughs> they put barriers around. And then that said, well, now the kid's going to stay in the living room. How about I got another idea? Just tell them don't leave the living room. And if you're training them to obey, they won't do it. Because every time they do what they're told not to do, discipline comes and then... They learn to obey. They learn to obey. Kids can obey. Kids can obey. And let me just say this while I'm on this subject, and you're still here listening. And I know that what I'm saying is flying in the face of what all the experts say. But you know what an expert uh, is? What did they say that one? One person's X means it has been and spurt means a dripping faucet. So it's just a, it's a has been that's dripping. That's all an expert is. And you know, they say you can't teach, you don't, oh, don't listen to them. You know what the best book that's ever been written about parenting is? It's the book of Proverbs. Man, when we, when we found out we were expecting, we just started reading Proverbs and we've read it for 22 years. That's how old our oldest is right now. You just read Proverbs. Just keep reading Proverbs and praying and saying, Lord, how do I do this? That's, that'll, that'll tell you. That'll tell you. But many parents, and we could easily do it ourselves, many parents teach their children to disobey. They would never say they are, but this is the way they do it. Johnny, don't do that. He's going to go touch uh, let's see. Let's see. What's he going to touch? You got your, uh, your, your DVD player with the little buttons. I got to tell you something, man. Little boys have a gene that says if there is a button, you push it. If there's a switch, you flip it. If there's a handle, you grab it, right? Mine was no different. So there's this little buttons. You say, no, don't, Johnny, don't, don't touch that. When they're little, they can't even walk yet. They know what you mean. Johnny, don't touch that. So what does Johnny do, right? Johnny goes over and he touches it. Right there now, you're going to either teach him to obey or disobey. If you tell him again, Johnny, don't touch that. You just taught him to disobey. Because there was no constant. You you already told him not to do it once. He's done it. If you repeat that, you've just taught him, I can disobey dad the first time. So he keeps touching it. And then if you say, Johnny, I said don't touch that. You just taught him that he can disobey you twice now. Because you've taught, you keep telling him. And then you say, Johnny, I told you not to touch that. He knows I can disobey dad until the decibel level gets to here. You're just teaching him to disobey you. Johnny, I told you. And then he says, okay, now I can't disobey the next time that now he's going to discipline me if I do it again. And then he doesn't do it. 
And you're just teaching your children to disobey. Friends, just tell them once. And if they don't do it, you bring in whatever discipline that they need. And then they learn. Wow, when mom and dad say something, I've got to do it. And you save yourself a lot of trouble because you're not yelling and your adrenaline isn't running. And, you know, you're not getting ulcers. You just say, Johnny, don't do it. Parents can actually train their children to obey them. And as they do, the children become more secure. Uh, Someone once said that children are like night security officers in a dark, supposedly abandoned building. And they go around and they check all the doorknobs. They really don't want one of the doorknobs to turn and open. Because now they might have somebody in there. (laughs) It could be bad in there. Children want, they test mom and dad all the time. And they don't really want mom and dad to give in. They want to know where the boundaries are. They want the security of knowing this is the way life is. Mom and dad have got the, they've drawn the borders. You don't, but they're going to test the borders their whole life, right? And you just keep, you set the tone when they're young and you just keep bringing it there. And God knows I'm telling you some success stories. I've had plenty of failures, but God knows that you just keep going back to God and say, Lord, I've been slipping up lately. I'm telling him twice instead of once. I'm, I've been slipping up. Lord, help me. Forgive me. And you just come back. And with God's grace, you just keep raising your kids. But we can train our children to obey. They're better off for it. We're better off for it. The world is better off for it. This world, our culture is full of people, adults, whose parents never taught them to accept no as an answer. What do you think road rage is? Half of what road rage is is just people who've, who've always gotten their way. Don't you love it? You know, it's people who've never had to learn that they can't always get what they want. It's our job to train our children to become actually mature people. Well, I've gone on and on enough on this. The el- for our elders, the home is the training ground. The home, this, another way to look at this passage, the home is the training ground. And it doesn't matter. Uh, I've been ordained as a pastor. Other people have been ordained as elders. We were judged at one point as being qualified but this just keeps going on. I always have a home and, and I need to, to, to always be tuned in to the home. Is there bickering there? Is there a lack of kindness there? Hey, I'm the dad in the home. I have to do something about this. And so I run to God and say, Lord, help me. How do I help my family be the, how do I help us be the way we ought to be? We should always be in dependence on God, man for our families and then just go to God and say, well, I don't like it the way it is. It's got to change. Lord, help me and pray and move our, our, our family in the way that God wants to go. And a big part of this, I just want to say again, is family worship. You know, we started using the family worship plan. Some of you have commented about how that's helped. It's on our website. There's some copies back on the literature table. Men, just keep bringing our families to the word of God in prayer. Let's keep doing it. The danger, you see, in not fulfilling this requirement of elders, the danger is 
that elders will be people that other people will not follow. People will not follow them. They've never been, they've never been proved in their own home as a leader that can shepherd people. Now they're placed in a position of eldership because of whatever. But people aren't really going to follow them. People aren't going to be shepherded because the man hasn't learned how to shepherd in his own home. But the strength, however, the strength, though, is that if they have proved at home that they can shepherd their own family, that means they have the ability to shepherd people in the church. And so it's very, very important. This qualification is super important. You notice how much more attention has actually been given it by the Apostle Paul. In, in some of these other characteristics, he mentions them and then just goes on. In this one, he lingers there. It takes him two verses. He talks about it in verse 4. He talks about the implication of it in verse 5. It's very, very important. And when there's a man who's shepherded within his own home, that means he can shepherd in the church too. Amen? Amen. Now let's keep going. Uh, Look at verse 6. And it says, And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Here we see that this person has to be seasoned. They have to have some track record uh, and they have to have some evidence of maturity. They can't just have come to Christ and then you put them in a position of leadership. It's not the way it's to be. That word for a new convert literally means newly planted. It's just like a little, a little seed that's come up or a sapling that's, that's been pl- transplanted. And it's, it's young. It's vulnerable. It's new. That person isn't to be in leadership. Why? Well, it says there in verse 6, because it says, so that he will not become conceited. That word conceited is interesting. It it could literally be translated wrapped in smoke. It's like their vision is clouded. When a person becomes proudful, they have pride in their life. They don't see correctly. They don't see things the right way. They can't see things the right way. They don't see themselves rightly. They don't see others and their relationships correctly. And they don't see God correctly, all because of pride. Wrapped in smoke, clouded vision. That's what conceit is. Have you ever been driving in the car in the winter and then a big, big snowstorm comes and you can't see? You can't see exactly where you're going? Or have you ever been... Uh, around a campfire and the smoke comes your way, it always comes my way. Doesn't it always come where you're sitting? You get up and move around and then it blows that way too. You got the smoke in your eyes. That's what conceit does to you. Except there's a difference. When I'm driving the car in in the snowstorm, when I'm sitting along the campfire with smoke in my eyes, I know I can't see. I know it. But pride gets in there and you don't realize it. You don't realize that you can't see straight. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. In 1 Peter chapter 5, you might want to turn there. It's on page 1442. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 9. There's an interesting passage where Peter talks about pride. And it will also help us understand what Paul has said when he said 
If there's a new convert, he says, he'll become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What is that? Let's read this. At 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Isn't it interesting that here in this passage it's talking about pride, It also mentions the devil again. You see what's happening though. You see up there in verse 5, it says, Clothe yourselves with humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When a person becomes proud, it's not that God then becomes neutral. Up to that point, God is helping them. He's giving them grace as they're humble. Then a person becomes proud and God just stops giving the grace. Now it goes beyond that. He now opposes. God actively opposes the proud. You see that in verse 5? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We need to humble ourselves also. You see in verse 6. The answer to pride is to humble yourself, get before God, ask his forgiveness for your pride, and then say, Lord, I I, I humble myself because all that you've enabled me to be, all that you've enabled me to do is exactly that. It's your enabling. It's not me. It's you. And to humble yourself. You want to humble yourself rather than to be humbled by God. Have you ever been around a person That's been humbled by God. It's not a pretty picture. It's still God's grace working in a person to bring them back around to himself. But it's it's not a pretty picture when God moves to humble a person. There is no opposing that. There is no resisting that. God always wins. Better to humble yourself and then receive his grace and strength to actually uh, be uh, the person he wants you to be and to move forward. Another thing about this first Peter passage is anxiety is there, and it's linked with pride. Are you an anxious person? Go home and pray about this, that perhaps some of your anxiety is because you're proud, and your pride is getting in there. And you're worried about your, your reputation. You're worried about things that have to do with your pride. Uh, it could be that that's one reason why you're anxious. And in the same case, the answer is humble yourself. Humble yourself. Now back in First Timothy, it said that the elder must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What is that condemnation? I think it's this opposition of God. Being opposed by God is the condemnation. You don't want that. And so that's the danger. Can you see what the danger would be where you take a man who's just a new convert, not very seasoned, New in his faith, and you make him a leader. 
He can become proud. And then you have a leader of the church who God is opposing. We don't want that. Amen? That's the danger. But the strength is, is that if, you, if we wait and we only put men into leadership who, who are, are, are seasoned and mature, they walk in humility, then we have men who have God's strength. Because God is giving them grace. They have God's strength rather than God opposing them. Well, is pride clouding your vision? Are you being proud about things? Remember 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, friend, just humble yourself and let the vision become clearer and walk with God and receive his strength. Repent of pride. And one other thing before we go on to the third, the third aspect of this message is, are you longing perhaps for God to use you in big ways? Perhaps you're, there's a tug in your heart and you want God to use you in, in bigger ways. Maybe it's not as an elder, but just you want God to use you in big ways. Well, bless, bless you for having that desire. But this verse will say to you, be, just be patient. Be patient. You don't want to step into some position that you're really not meant for or not ready for. It's dangerous to be there. You just be patient and serve him where he has put you. Serve him where you are in the opportunities that you have and let God move you on to bigger things. Prove yourself in the small things. It's God's way. Amen? It's God's way. Now, third, look at verse 7. There's another danger and another strength here. It says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. An elder must have a good reputation with outsiders, meaning those who aren't even in the church, the people that he works with, uh, the, the people that know him in the community for whatever reason, the people he rubs shoulders with. What is their impression of him do they does he have a good reputation with them an elder must must be that way and it says that if he's not he will fall into reproach you see if he's living a double life if he's living one way at work and another way on sunday he's not qualified to be a leader in the church and actually that lifts up that standard for us all we're supposed to be the same people Every day of the week. We're not supposed to be different on Sunday than on the others. You see, if the people at work here, hey, you just got voted in as an elder and said, what? You're a leader in the church? Ah, that's funny. You know, something's, something's wrong. And what will happen is, is there's a snare. Satan is setting a snare. You see that again in verse 7? So that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It's interesting that, that several times Paul uses the idea of a snare when he talks about Satan. In this verse, a man can be snared, ensnared by the reproach that comes to him, the just reproach. 
that comes to him from outsiders while he's a leader in the church. We'll see it later, but in chapter 6, verse 9, covetousness is called a snare, that Satan can snare us with covetousness. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, we can be snared by beliefs that are untrue, false doctrine. Satan has all kinds of traps that he's putting out there. And he's trying to snare us. You know what a snare is, right? When we were in Africa and uh, the people we lived with were, were hunters and, and um, they had all kinds of things they knew how to do. But they would set these little snares for these birds that were a little bit like quail, uh, something like quail. They were good to eat. And so they'd set some corn in there and they'd put a little snare of string around the corn and it had a slip knot on it and the string went over here and there was a little there was a little well i won't go through the whole detail but they had a little stick that was set just a certain way and they had a sapling that was pulled down so it's pulled and the strings on the top of the sapling there's a little stick there and what would happen it was all rigged up so that when the bird stepped inside this the little ring of string and happened to knock the uh the stick it knocked this other stick and the saplings sprung up and the slip knot went right around its leg. And there went the, there went the bird <laughs> hanging upside down, flapping all over. It's all over, buddy. That bird was going to be somebody's dinner that night. And that's what Satan is doing. He always, he puts things out there that we think are good for us. And then we step into it and we're stuck there's actually a slavery an entrapment then that comes covetousness is a big one we'll look at that later when it comes in the book of first timothy but covetousness is a giant snare uh, false doctrine like i said is a snare here putting people forward into ministry and into positions in the church that when they're not ready yet that's a snare it's actually they think it's good the church might think it's good but it's dangerous it's very dangerous sometimes a person is thinking he knows he's living uh, a double life or he it may not be a double life it's just it's an inconsistent life he and 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 the people at work are saying what you're an elder and and one way Satan can entrap him then is he can think, well, I've gotten away with this over at the church. Maybe I can get away with something else. Or he may begin arguing then with those who are reproaching him, trying to justify himself to them. And now relationships are getting, getting going sour because of it. And he's trapped in that. Or he tries to appease those in the world. Who, who are looking at him and say, I know who you really are. I know what you're really like. And he, he begins to get entangled in relationships and, and efforts to extricate himself or make them think of him better. Or there's another great snare in this is that he will say to himself, well, I can't tell the people in the church not to do this because I'm doing it myself. And those are, those are just a few thoughts. There's a great danger in putting a man into church leadership too soon. Uh, or, excuse me, too soon, we already covered that. But who's, who's not of a good repute at work. There's a great danger in that. And the danger is, is that Satan will trap them. 
Satan will trap that person. But the corresponding strength is, is if you have a man who has an impeccable reputation at work and he's walking in such a way that even non-believers look at him and say, this, this guy walks the walk. I, I might not agree with what he believes, but he's consistent. That person then has God's freedom. He's not entrapped at all, but he has freedom. He has God's freedom in his, in his life. Friends, that's the kind of man we want to be a leader in the church. And actually, that's the kind of person we all want to be. People whose Christianity is not something that's uh, restricted to Sundays. Genuine Christianity is something that God gives us. It's something that's an internal change that God has wrought in our hearts. And it works itself out into our behavior. And so it's, it's the way we are every day of the week. That's what we want. So we got here three dangers and three strengths. The danger to not obeying this verse and choosing people that aren't qualified to be church leaders is that, number one, people will not follow them. Number two, God will oppose them. And number three, Satan will trap them. We don't want that. Amen? But the strength is, is if we do pick these kind of people, that they are people that have the ability to shepherd others. And they have God's strength. He's giving them grace. And they are free. They're not entrapped, but they're free before God. They have God's freedom. Those are the kind of men that we want to be leaders in our church. And those are the kind of people all of us want to be. Amen? And God, in his grace, will make us that. He will make all of us that. If we go to him and go to Christ, receive from him the forgiveness that God gives, and then walk with him in the fullness of the Spirit, he can change us and make us all that way. Amen and amen. Let's, let's close our time in prayer. Let's stand together. Father, your word here challenges us. It challenges those of us who are parents. Uh, to, to be the kind of parents we need to be. It challenges all of us, Lord, to be um, maturing people, consistent people who live our Christianity on Monday the same as Sunday, to be men and women, Lord, who follow you. Father, I pray that you would work in our lives and that you would bring to fruition all that's said in this verse in our lives. Make us into the people you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you all.